You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens, and I'm here with two good professors from Belmont Abbey's Honors College. And gentlemen, would you just take a quick moment to introduce who you are so we can identify a voice with the name? Sure. Uh, hi, I'm I'm Joe Wysocki. I'm the director of the Honors College. I've been teaching at Belmont Abbey for seven years in the government and political philosophy department. Uh, I now serve as the assistant dean of academic affairs and the director of the Honors College. And my name is Joshua Wren, and I'm the assistant director of the Honors College. I have been at the Abbey for just one year, which shows that Providence is not always just, because I've been invited into this incredible project uh, with very little merit. So it's, it's very good to be part of it. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, to start us off today, that this program at Belmont Abbey, I've been going over it. It looks very exciting. Would it be fair to be calling this a great books program? Uh, absolutely. Um, we have uh, a four-year curriculum with a number of options that we can talk about, uh, a cre- credit level option, but it's a great books program that's centered around three perspectives, the ancient, the Christian, and the modern. And the first three years of the curriculum focus on the conversation between authors in those three perspectives. Mm. The fourth year is a little bit different. I don't know if you'd like uh, for us to talk about that now, but it's uh, something that you wouldn't typically see in a uh, in a traditional, which is uh, topical courses on something we call the crises uh, in the West. And the purpose of that fourth year is to take the great conversation of the mm-hmm. great books, uh, the perspectives of the ancients, Christians, and moderns, and bring them to bear very crises that uh, would very much be things that our students would be expected to um, have thought about as they enter the world. And uh, in that fourth year, we actually do bring in some of the thought and scholarship of contemporary authors, 20th and 20th century authors. For example, Alistair McIntyre from Notre Dame, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, and many others as well. And I think a lot of people would ask, especially that final year that you do about conversations in the West, I think what a lot of people would say one of the crises of the West is that we don't actually know how to have a conversation anymore. Uh, How does this program prepare someone for a conversation? Yeah, I think that that uh, that is actually something that's directly addressed in one of the texts that uh, Dr. Wysocki just mentioned, Mm -hmm. Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. He starts off that book basically just giving us a diagnosis of, of why we are unable to converse without very quickly uh, arriving at a shrill tone <laughs> that much of, our, much of our public discourse very quickly devolves into this kind of shrillness. And the reason for this, he says, is not because we don't hold logical positions, because we have logical positions, but that our premises are radically different. Now, I think that uh, one of the ways that the, the Great Books College uh, will prepare a student to countenance that, pro- that, that problem, which is a kind of sub-crisis, as you mentioned, that kind of un- undergirds a lot of the others, or at least is related to them, mm-hmm. uh, is by uh, being able to, over the course of the first three years especially, identify first principles and fundamental premises of the authors that we're reading. Um, and being able to see the, uh, the truth in uh, the, op- the opponent's uh, position mm-hmm. uh, and, and to do so in such a way that, is, that, that necessitates a, um, a charitable 
reading right of that of that opponent um, and that is just, that is not to say that this would lead towards a kind of relativism uh, there's a, there's certainly a kind of point where it becomes a slippery slope uh, yes but uh, but this you're habituated as a student to have to approach all of these books many of which will present problematic ideas to you for example Machiavelli's the prince right for most mm-hmm. Catholics is going to be a difficult text to find good in um, but you would approach it saying is there wisdom in this right and then if you conclude that there isn't you have to draw on another set of first principles and to be able to uh, articulate that argument you know coherently uh, with you know, with both logic and, I guess, rhetorical uh, charity. Great answer. And that actually starts getting to the heart of something I want to ask you. Don't know if I mentioned it to either of you. I actually went through a great books program myself at Thomas More College in New Hampshire, and which was a great education. I really valued it highly. But one question I always got was, well, what are you going to do with that? And I didn't think it would be fair to go through this podcast without asking, as you touched on it, but what would you say someone can do with it? What's been the trajectory you've seen in some of your students? Uh, well, I, you know, I would say this, that since we're introducing it this year, we don't have any um, particular students that we've mm-hmm. necessarily been tracking, but uh, we certainly have thoughts about this. Um, so uh, I guess I would start in one way by saying that uh, sort of to bring up the the curricular options I mentioned at the beginning, the students in our program actually have three different options uh, in the Great Books program. And so it would be a four-year curriculum uh, no matter what, and the courses would be the same in all three options, but we would have something like the Thomas More or the Thomas Aquinas or St. John's model, which would be 120 credits of Great Books. Mm Mm-hmm. And students would have the ability to, to study only great books while they're here. But in addition to that, we'd also have a great books major, which would be a 90-credit option that would allow students 30 credits to uh, take in electives, whether those would be in languages, uh, in internships, in minors at Belmont Abbey, or for really ambitious students, possibly a double major mm. in one of the traditional majors we offer at Belmont Abbey. But the third option, which at least for year one seems to be the option that many of our incoming freshmen are interested in, is uh, a 75-credit great books option, which would allow students to, to choose various other majors. So, for example, I've, I've, we have, looks like probably about 30 students probably coming in for the fall, hopefully some more in the, in the next few weeks. But um, a, a good number of them want to be biology majors, so they want to, be, they want to go to medical school. Uh, But they also really are in love with great books. Uh, They've had some experience in their early education that makes them really interested in in a great books education. And so we'll have students here who would be able to do this biology major, uh, be ready to take the MCAT, go to medical school, but also would have a great books background. We've had a number of other students who are interested in, in say, business or accounting or uh, or some of our humanities majors, and they'll do that along with the great books core. Uh, but I, I think even within the Great Books framework, um, that our students would not be unprepared for for employment when they when they come out. Um, yeah, I would I would just add a few things uh, to what Dr. Barsaki has already said, and I'll frame this in terms of ends. Right, what what are the ends of any workplace? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the ends of a human life? 
right? So within the the three perspectives that we've uh, established as organizing principles for the the Honors College, uh, this is an oversimplification to be sure, but the ancients, right, sought as the end of human life, excellence and virtue, right? And the Christians, right, introduce a new end to, to human life. One of the primary ends is liberty, right? Uh, equality, we can think of other ends that modernity is concerned with. Uh, but I think that it's fair to say that uh, someone who passes through a great book's education will bring uh, concerns with ends, right, to their workplace that other sort of just, quote-unquote, workers who are only technically skilled, right, will not have. Now, the, the sort of uh, inside joke about this is that you, for some employers, that won't be a very welcome thing, I suppose, right, because <laughs> someone who's someone who's educated in great books might ask more questions about why they have to undertake a particular task if it doesn't seem like there's any meaning to it or purpose to it. Right. But, but I think especially for um, for Catholic employers and for employers who increasingly are turning to virtue ethics, right, in order to mm-hmm. improve the workplace, somebody who's educated in these other ends, right, and who knows that any uh, temporal task should ultimately conform to one's eternal ends, right, will mm-hmm. be a welcome uh, presence at the, uh, at the board, you know, the boardroom table or in the discussion table um, of the workplace. Yes, I can absolutely see that. And getting back to the curriculum that you guys had that's so wonderful, uh, what would you say is the value of us in this, whatever you want to call us, if we're in postmodernism, if we're in pure cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call our time, but what would you say is the value of guys in our time right now reading ancient authors, even pre-Christian authors? Well, I think Dr. Waisaki might have uh, some additional thoughts, but to begin with, I'll, I'll say um, that if it is true that we are in a state of crisis, right? Mm-hmm. I think it would be hard to deny that, right? I, mean, <laughs> I agree. I know, I know that I know that they do sell rosy-colored glasses when you're checking out at Walgreens, but I don't think that those are uh, powerful enough of a prescription to sort of blind us to the fact we are facing these very real, large-scale crises. And so, if that's true, then we would ask, well, how how did we get to this point? What caused these crises? And if we say that many of these crises of post-modernity actually have their origins in certain aspects of modernity and especially in certain aspects of the Enlightenment, um, and that post-modernity is really just a logical conclusion, a playing out of certain things that are introduced in modernity and in the Enlightenment period, then we would have to say, okay, we it is time to turn to thinkers who are outside of this uh, paradigm, I guess I, I don't want to use that word too loosely, but are outside of this regime would be another way of thinking of it, right? Uh, in order to find solutions to this crisis, that is to say that we we strongly believe and conclude rationally that um, we can only escape the crises of, for example, rights that we're facing, right? The crises mm-hmm. over over rights increasingly, you know, adding rights. Uh, every year, it seems, right? If we begin to uh, countenance 
that understanding of human rights with an understanding of virtue ethics, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where do we go to learn about virtue ethics? We go to the Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. If we go into a, if we, if part of our crisis is that our horizons have been unduly narrowed and circumscribed by concerns only with this world, right? Part of that happens because there's a sort of new um, ultimacy that is given to politics, right, in modernity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then how do we escape that crisis? Well, we have to regain the vision that is only available in the writers of writers such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, and the Church Fathers. Uh, also, you know, scripture, which we have several courses just covering the Bible, um, that these, the you know, being steeped in these uh, readings will uh, increase our vision of the other world, the world that is to come. And these are sort of, at least in part, beginnings of ameliorating some of these crises. I suppose I would just add that um, I would say that a, a great book's education it provides an education that is that that uh, provi- that gives true diversity in the most useful sense. So I think so often in modern higher education, diversity is something that is emphasized. But it it seems like diversity in most of those contexts is is good for its own sake, right? If you present different viewpoints of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, this somehow makes an education mm-hmm. better. The way I understand true diversity and and it's good would be along the lines of what um, Dr. Wren has just mentioned. It provides us potential ways out of of the current um, very limited uh, dialogue. So uh, to go back to Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, he says the problem in current moral discourse is we have Kantians and utilitarians. Uh, and people tend to limit their arguments for uh, in, in political debate to either deontological rights talk or utilitarian talk. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's not diversity there, <laughs> right? There's, there's no way out. When we limit ourselves and say these are the two ways that we can reason morally, um, it, it puts us in a very limited situation. So I would say that you know, turning back to Aristotle is a great example, but my favorite example, the one that I'm the most comfortable with, is that um, you know, Alexei de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, mm-hmm. which we have a whole course on, has a constant comparison between democracy and aristocracy. And it's through this comparison, right? I mean, rather than limiting ourselves to say, well, we want to improve democracy because we happen to live in one, and we'll just look at the internal reasoning of democracy, let's look at something external to that, uh, that may be able to help us to improve where we are. Yeah, and and I think just that that the part of the the kind of pedagogical approach mm-hmm. uh, and just the overarching approach that we take to these great books also is pertinent to your question. And in in the sense that there are a number of ways you can approach an ancient text or a quote unquote medieval mm-hmm. text. One, talking about it exclusively in terms of its chronology. Aristotle is an ancient thinker and an ancient thinker only, and he has no bearing on modern times because, after all, he grew up in ancient Greece. And what he said is important for ancient Greeks, or thinking of, for example, Thomas Aquinas, right, is uh, exemplary in terms of the highest thinking that the medieval period Mm -hmm. could reach. But what he says about the nature of pity, for example, no longer pertains to how we should think about, right, being sympathetic with uh, 
people who are different from us or something like that, mm-hmm. right? And and so, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the great books, pedagogy hinges on the question of his, historicism, right? And so do you treat, and this is something that Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI brings up in the beginning of Jesus of Nazareth, right? There's a way in which we can treat any given text as a product of its times to such an extent that it strips that text of its perennial wisdom. And you can do this with scripture. You can do this with any, literally any text. Um, and so our approach, right, is to say that, yes, it's true that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas lived in you know, medieval Europe. Um, is he a product of his time in certain accidentals, you could say? Yes. But in the most important things, he has engaged in eternal questions yes right and those eternal questions are eternal they do not disappear there's no sort of expiration date on them that's for sure and that's uh something that might be hard for some of us to understand that there are things that are eternal but they may may take us a while to realize they're eternal either by incorporating those lessons or not incorporating them and learning from that mistake if not incorporating them we're talking a lot about virtue on this podcast, which I am very excited about. Uh, what would you say is the biggest challenge for someone to want to be a virtuous person, not just in this program, but anyone who's approaching great books in general? What would you say is their biggest obstacle right now with the modern mind to become a virtuous person? Uh, I, you know, I think that our, our regime uh, greatly affects our souls and the way we think about mm-hmm. morality, to be sure. And uh, that modern focus that Dr. Wren mentioned on liberty tends to influence us in such a way, I think, that if there is an American virtue, it might be something like you can do what you want as long as you don't hurt other people. Uh, And so something like the harm principle in John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty, right, that we should um, – that we're we're sort of – fulfilling our moral obligations insofar as we don't interfere with the rights of others. Um, and so um, this focus on excellence uh, is seems to disappear in modernity. And that's one of the things that I think a great, so just one of the things that a great books education can do is helps to, to regain uh, a sense of greatness and greatness is tied to excellence, if that makes sense. And so um, it's a corrective in that sense to the pusillanimity or the small-mindedness yes. that can oftentimes come when we have as our end just mere liberty or mere, mere equality, um, right? Uh, and so that's part of it. I think another thing that it, that it, that threatens the cultivation of virtue in our time is that we're – and this is something Dr. Wysocki and I were, were talking about recently um, – that m- most of us, right, our, our students and ourselves are um, – are deficient both in terms of humil- true humility and true magnanimity. That is to say that m- most of us are, by our regime, sort of predisposed to being kind of, again, small-minded and petty, right? Concerned with small thing, making really small things really important. And then also at the same time, having a kind of, there's, there's a sort of, you know, this is a plague of our times with the reasons why so many people have anxiety and why there's so much sort of a sense of kind of insecurity that manifests oftentimes in an assertion of kind of uh, pride, an, ex- an undue kind of uh, conceitedness, yes. if this makes sense. <laughs> so, right. So I do think that um, 
just exposing yourself to these great minds over time puts you in a position where you are both learning humility because you learn how radically limited your own knowledge is, even if you know a lot. Yes. Um, and you, you that that's part of the, the, the development of humility. But it also cultivates a kind of boldness or magnanimous disposition in the sense that you are saying, I am participating in this conversation, this dialogue with these great minds. And insofar as I'm participating in it, then I'm, uh, I'm trying to become great-souled myself, if that makes sense. Oh, yes, it absolutely does. All that you've talked about, I know that Belmont Abbey, if it's famous for anything, as well as a great college, it's also one of uh, the South's oldest Benedictine monasteries. Does the Benedictine spirituality influence the curriculum or the teaching at all? That actually, I don't mean to be redundant, but the, the, the sorts of things that I was just bringing up are definitely part of uh, St. Benedict's emphasis in his rule. He has a whole chapter on hu on what he calls the ladder of humility. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of, of course, uh, virtues that the monk must cultivate, but one of them is that humility uh, and that uh, and there, there's another one that I would bring up because, again, I don't want to be redundant and go into humility again, is <clears throat> the the um, the life that conjoins both uh, aura at labora or work and prayer. I think that this uh, spirit permeates the approach that we have to these texts in the following way. It might it might be a sort of indirect way, but I think that a life that has a regular rhythm of prayer and work is a life that is more contemplative mm -hmm. and our curriculum tries to embody that contemplative approach even to the texts so we have intentionally limited the amount of texts that our students will read so that we're actually cutting out a number of our babies so to speak uh, there are some really great texts that we don't have on the curriculum because we wanted to privilege or prioritize slow and careful contemplative mm. reading mm. so that we read only 10 pages for a class instead of trying to do a kind of encyclopedic uh, mastery, uh, 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 an encyclopedic type of mastery, which is that we're going to just almost treat texts kind of like consumers, mm. right? So that we, um, we, we know, uh, we, we kind of glean through uh, a bunch of them, but we don't go deeply right into yes. any of them. And that depth is part of, again, that contem contemplative way of life that I think is distinct to, of the Benedictines. Yeah. And while the, the, I would add, while the comparison falls apart to some extent, I, I think, um, to add to what Dr. Ren is saying, that it's, it's comparable the way our, our approach to text is comparable to, uh, or at least is um, tries to embody the spirit of Lexio Divina, which is the the monk's uh, method of slow reading of scripture mm -hmm. and prayer. So in, w granted, we're not reading scripture all the time, but this idea that rather than trying to get through uh, a text that one could spend uh, more, t more time than the syllabus allows on a particular passage or a particular chapter in the text, um, insofar as it's, if, if it continues to be fruitful to, to spend more time with that, uh, it would uh, would be something we would want to do. Doc, Dr. Wysocki, are you trying to say that uh, we should treat Marx as the Communist Manifesto? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, that would be a great way to end this podcast. But yeah, go on. <laughs> Monk, monks of the world unite. <laughs> it really emphasizes prayer and work this time. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah. And I imagine also the classroom conversations. I don't know if it's a lecture or a conversational way you do the classroom, but I imagine all the same that even the conversations among students must be very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so far, you know, we're, we're trans- uh, the Honors Institute was a, a sort of lighter great books program. Mm-hmm. Um, but insofar, I've been, able, I've, I've been able to teach a number of courses uh, to the Honors Institute students. And um, typically, I was the Tocqueville guy. So I got to teach a course on Tocqueville. And uh, I found every time I taught it that students um, ha- had never raised the questions about their regime that they've that they're exposed to in Tocqueville. And so every time I taught the course, when I would enter the room and uh, and at the end of class, the students were, at least three or four of them, sitting there, I mean, just really grappling with Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think um, we, I, I anticipate seeing that more uh, in, in the more rigorous curriculum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, ju- I just, if you don't mind, I just wanted to bring up, uh, you, had, you had mentioned, you had asked the question about the, the Benedictine yes. connection. And I think it, you know, uh, it would be worth noting the kind of Catholic vision that's also yes. at work in our honors college, uh, because there are great books colleges or great books programs that are not as distinctly Catholic as ours. Um, and what I mean by this is, right, even if you look at the way that we've organized ancients, Christians, and moderns, right, there are Christian authors, let's say, in most great books, colleges, but they're not treated as uh, set apart in any real substantive way. Uh, so, you know, you might read the Bible, but you're going to treat it as a great book. You might read Augustine, but you're not going to treat what he's reflecting on necessarily as revelation, um, and in our college, of course, we will treat the Bible as revelation, um, so that it needs something that needs to be reasoned upon, right? Which Augustine and Aquinas later do, mm-hmm. um, but that it's 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 basically the, to put it simply, that what is revealed to us by God, while we can arrive at a lot of truths about the nature of God on our own using our reason, right? There are there are a number of them and very crucial ones, including. God's love, right, that we simply can't uh, deduce, right, or uh, using our, our reason alone. And so um, I think that will come, come, come across, right, even though there's this kind of dialectical nature to the curriculum between ancients, Christians, and moderns, that distinctness with which we approach uh, the Catholic text. Um, another thing that I'll note in that regard is just that in, those, in that final year, the crises year, this, the crises of the West, in each of those courses, history and the idea of progress, science and technology, the drama of modern atheism, love, friendship, and marriage, freedom, rights, and virtue, mm-hmm. uh, etc., we have a kind of a Catholic voice in each of those. So in science and technology, we have Romano Gardini. In the drama of mo- modern atheism, we have Dostoevsky, so not a Catholic, but Christian voice. Uh, in freedom, rights, and virtue, we have a number of Catholic thinkers including McIntyre and Charles DeConnick. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our class on education and the fate of nations, we have, you know, we have, for example, we have Confucius's Analects on there, 
but we also have John Paul II's faith and reason. So, so that there's a Catholic voice engaged in dialogue on the nature of each of these crises and how to, uh, how to respond, rightly respond to them. Fantastic. And as we wrap up a little bit here, if there's any parents, interested students, anyone like that that wants to learn more about Belmont Abbey's Honors College, uh, where can they go and where, how can they find out more information? Um, so our website uh, is, gosh, what is our website? Uh, <laughs> oh, boy, we just, sorry. well, yeah, so if they go to belmontabbeycollege.edu, mm-hmm. BelmontAbbeyCollege.edu. There is one of the main navigation tabs is the Honors College. Yes. So I would direct them there. Uh, but also um, they can contact me directly uh, at my name, so Joseph Wysocki at bac.edu. Okay. Uh, I, Perfect. Yeah. And I'll put all those links up on CatholicExchange.com. So if you're listening to this in your car. Don't go looking for it just yet. Wait till you get home. Go to CatholicExchange.com, and I'll have all those links for you folks. But I want to thank you, Professor, very much for coming out on today to introduce us to the Belmont Abbey Honors Program and what you guys are doing. This was a fantastic conversation. I could probably talk McIntyre to Tocqueville and Virtue all day, but you guys gave us a nice taste of what you do, which is wonderful. Well, we have to we have to embody the virtue of temper. <laughs> <laughs> we can only talk an hour even i agree i could talk with you till midnight so. <laughs> thank you so for your generosity and hosting oh, us yeah thank you very my much my pleasure gents <laughs>